This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. How many HF digital operating modes do you think are available today? You mean there are modes other than FT8? Just kidding, really. Depending on how you want to count, there are dozens of modes to choose from, ranging, of course, from FT8 to Olivia, Contestia, Throb, MFSK, and many others. All of these modes are fun to play with, and some, like Olivia, offer some considerable advantages. With Olivia, for example, you can carry on text conversations in terrible conditions where you can't even hear the other signal. There's a problem, though. It's usually difficult to figure out exactly what mode you're hearing or seeing on your software waterfall display. Let's go back to Olivia as an example. There are several flavors, if I can call them that, of Olivia, depending on the bandwidth and the number of tones in use. Now here's a CQ using Olivia with 8 tones and a 500 Hz bandwidth, or just Olivia 8 500. Now listen to the same Olivia CQ with four tones in a 500 Hz bandwidth, or Olivia 4 500 as they call it. It isn't all that easy to tell them apart, is it? And when you see one of these signals in your software display... All you can do is start quickly cycling through your program through all the various modes until you find one that causes coherent text to start printing on your screen. By the time you find a match, the other station may have stopped transmitting, and this is pretty frustrating to say the least. The good news is that there is a solution, and it's been around for a number of years. It's called Reed-Solomon Identification, or just RSID. RSID was the invention of Patrick Leindecker, F6CTE, and you'll find it in several of the multi-mode applications such as FL Digi, Ham Radio Deluxe, Multi-PSK, and several others. Here's how it works. When RSID is turned on and you start a transmission, the software generates a 1.4 second MFSK signal that carries the identification of the type of signal you're about to send. In this example, I'll send a CQ using Contestia. Listen for the brief warble of the RSID signal followed by the Contestia CQ. Did you catch that RSID signal? Okay, let's just listen to the RSID signal by itself. So what happens on the receiving end? Let's say that your software is up and running and you're staring at your waterfall display. If you hear the RSID that's announcing my Contestia CQ, a little window will appear to tell you what kind of signal I'm transmitting. 
In most applications, if you click on that little window, your software will automatically select the correct mode and you'll start seeing my CQ text on your screen. Your software can decode an RSID down to about minus 16 dB, which means that it should be able to identify most of the signals you're likely to hear. Most programs require you to enable RSID reception. In other words, it isn't there by default. You may also have to turn on RSID transmission. That's definitely not on by default. My practice is to have RSID reception active at all times. I really enjoy the convenience of clicking on that little window when I pick up some oddball signal. Of course, RSID doesn't work unless the transmitting stations are using it. Again, my rule of thumb is to enable RSID in my transmissions whenever I'm trying to scare up a conversation with one of the less common modes. I don't use it when I venture over to PSK31 frequencies because everybody knows that if you're transmitting on that frequency, you're sending PSK31 or one of the variants. However, if I choose something like PSK128, yes, that's one of those variants, then I'll turn on RSID. If you'd like to break out of the FT8 mold and play with something different, by all means do so. Just turn on RSID and chances are you'll have much better success finding contacts. I'm on the telephone with Bob Allison, WB1GCM, and Bob is the assistant ARRL laboratory manager. And I was thinking of saving this topic for Halloween, Bob, but uh, <laughs> maybe it doesn't need to wait quite that long. And that's long-delayed echoes. I'm sure you've heard of those. Oh, yes, yeah, certainly. And I've had the opportunity to hear uh, a couple of them throughout my long amateur radio career. I've never heard one. Can, can you define in general terms what they are? Certainly. Um, basically, it's... Uh, it's when your electromagnetic signal that you've transmitted, let's say with your amateur radio transceiver, and um, you transmit, and uh, for some unknown reasons, they have theories about it, but they're, what happens is, is the electromagnetic signal that you transmit gets trapped either in the uh, ionosphere or a combination of the ionosphere and magnetosphere, and the signal comes around and reflects and travels uh, multiple times around the planet, and there's a, an echo effect. So if someone's hearing you or if you let go of your microphone, you might hear a very brief uh, echo of yourself or even your own voice coming back to you if uh, conditions are right enough. It's a really spooky phenomenon, and I did some digging, and I was surprised to find that they've been documenting this since 1927. That's correct. Uh, they were first detected by a, uh, a radio enthusiast listening to early shortwave radio broadcasts. I believe that person was in um, uh, Oslo, I believe. And Looking at the physics behind it, I mean, it takes a radio signal 130 milliseconds to circle the globe, give or take? About that. That that works out to be about a seventh of a second. So it has to circle, if indeed that's what's going on, it would have to circle a number of times, right? Many, many, many multiple times. So why is it that some of these long-delayed echoes are actually more than that one-seventh of a second or 130 milliseconds? So there's a number of uh, theories regarding that. We have a pretty good handle on some of the shorter echoes that we hear. Uh, these shorter echoes kind of sound like a reverb. If you're talking with a, an echo chamber of some sorts, 
electronic one, but the, the echo is, uh, the reverb is fast, and they theorize it's simply the radio signal being uh, trapped within the Earth's, uh, between the Earth and the ionosphere, and the radio signal just travels around the Earth multiple times, and we have that echo effect. Then uh, there's the, uh, the theory that the radio signal gets trapped and, um, in between, let's say, the uh, ionosphere and the magnetosphere. And uh, one is sort of coupled to the other, and the magnetic sphere, of course, extends pretty far out from the Earth. So the, it's a much, much longer path. So if the radio signal gets conducted along the magnetosphere, the path is longer, therefore the echo is longer. So uh, there's an effect of coupling between the ionosphere, the magnetosphere, and then back to the ionosphere and back to another receiver, or back to your own receiver hearing the echo. So uh, that's that's the one thing that uh, they believe is, is happening. Um, there's also plasma involved, which uh, a lot of uh, astrophysicists are, are, are theorizing that um, a plasma cloud, in this case, is a cloud of conductive gas that contains uh, uh, ions, and uh, it... It, it's a different density than uh, tr waves traveling through space. So uh, if a radio wave hits this cloud, and the theory is that the radio signal can slow down, and uh, the refraction, uh, refraction back from this plasma uh, can be delayed by several seconds. So, uh, And this plasma cr uh, cloud can be uh, traveling towards Earth. Um, and it's interesting that I've read um, in one occasion that the, there was a slight frequency change, meaning that whatever was reflecting this uh, signal was traveling towards us. And the path was uh, the, uh, the, the uh, incoming signal, kind of like a radar or a Doppler effect, uh, had a higher frequency because of its um, uh, incoming nature. So um, they believe that the radio signals uh, as they're transmitted, hits this plasma cloud, slows down, and then refracts back out of it, and then travels back. That's a, that's another theory. I used to think this was just an HF phenomenon, but then when I was uh, doing my reading, I saw that a scientist by the name of Hans Rasmussen found echoes of about five seconds at 1296 megahertz. Yes, that has something to do with something called mode conversion. And... Um, it has to do with plasma, electro, and, and then the, it's a coupling effects with uh, mechanical waves. Hard to describe here on a on a, um, on a uh, podcast, but there's um, some nonlinearity that presumes that there's a second transmitter involved, and it's all theory. Um, but the effects have been observed with delayed echoes of. Uh, many seconds as high as 1296 megahertz. I'm sure you've heard this, Bob, but of course, one of the more unusual theories is that, uh, and I'm serious, I read this oh, some years ago, that there is an alien repeater out there, a uh, an alien probe, and it's trying to get our attention by sending radio signals back to us. Have you heard that one? Oh, I think that goes back to uh, as early as uh, when they first detected such things, like who was doing this? Uh, we just uh, didn't understand or didn't have a scientific explanation. We don't really have a concrete one because, well, radio waves are invisible, and, but we can detect them. We know the time of transmission. We know the time of reception. And 
why in the world is there up to 40 seconds has been measured of these long delayed echoes? And so a logical explanation, uh, something as simple as a radio repeater, would make sense, but that certainly has to be proved. And what about the path loss? I, if something was way out in space, how is it that we are able to hear the echo just with ham gear? Well, we know that from Earth-Moon-Earth uh, transmissions that that reflection is very, very, very weak. So um, I don't think, uh, I don't believe that these um, long-delayed echoes are actually a reflection off the moon or other other objects. The, the signal coming back would just simply be too weak. So the idea of the uh, electromagnetic signal getting trapped within the uh, ducting between the uh, ionosphere and the magnetosphere is very attractive, as well as uh, radio waves uh, entering plasma clouds. It's, uh, again, a cloud of conductive gases with ions. And um, if, uh, if going into that uh, ion, that plasma cloud actually slows down the propagation of the speed of the radio wave, uh, significantly, that could explain some of the delay uh, from the echo. That's true. Now, again, you said that you've experienced this yourself. Can you describe one of these incidences? Sure. Uh, simply uh, uh, on the seven, I've heard it twice. One time was on the 10 meter band, and that was with my wife, Kathy, K A 1 R W Y. And in the, um, when she was first um, licensed, and she was really hot and heavy as a novice back in. Uh, Oh, the uh, late 1980s. She one time let go of the mic, and then right there, immediately when she left, let go of the mic, she heard herself coming back. And I heard a piece of that, too, and I said, what was that? And it was an echo of herself. Uh, so we don't know what caused that, but there, there were echoes. And some of the other DX signals on the air, as heard, were all echoey. And, uh, but the, the real echo effect I've heard mostly has been on the 75 meter band, where at times it, it, it seems like it might be a, a gray scale, a gray, uh, what do they call that? Uh, oh, the gray uh, line. The gray line propagation, yes. Uh, you hear uh, an echo effect like they're in an echo chamber or a, a long hallway. The, the echo repeating is very, very quickly, it's very quick, it seems, on the low frequencies. Um, you're talking 160 and maybe. 75 meters. I've heard it on 75 and uh, on 10 meters before. So the effect was a longer delay on 10, but a much, much faster delay on 75. So you think there might be a correlation with low frequencies and again, perhaps the gray line? I, I think so. That's when I've observed it. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's unknown. And for all radio amateurs, I would suggest uh, if you know of a time where the uh, sun has um, a coronal mass discharge and is sending plasma in our direction. That's a great time to uh, observe the ionosphere and see what happens to uh, various frequencies with echoes, because uh, that would uh, that would prove a little bit more that the plasma waves coming in would have something to do with these echoes. Oh, I never thought about that. Yeah, that's a good point. I'll have to be careful to pay attention to that. Now, mind you, Steve, I'm merely an amateur, and uh, I've been around and experienced some of these things, and I've read articles on them, too, but um, you might want to maybe perhaps ask Martin Ewing. Do you realize uh, the laboratory 
as Martin, AA6E, uh, he's an astrophysicist. He might like such questions. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, Martin's good on that. And uh, although, again, um, you want to explain some of these things in layman's terms, and Martin is very, very thorough. Well, they say there are no more mysteries in amateur radio, but that's not true, is it? No, no, no. Uh, there is certainly a mystery regarding uh, long-delayed echoes. And uh, it's one of the more interesting phenomenons that all of us can observe as long as we have patience and uh, you know, look at the uh, peak of the next solar cycle for the echoing effect. Uh, I believe this phenomenon happens near the peak of the solar cycle as well when the ionosphere and the reflectivity is at its best. So you're definitely sure it is not aliens trying to get our attention? Yeah, no, uh, I haven't uh, had any proof of anything like that, but uh, I'm open to all suggestions. <laughs> and you, you haven't had contacts or anything of that nature? Not yet. <laughs> not for lack of trying. That's right. <laughs> Well, it's a, just remember, it, it's a it's a very, very, very long way to the next star system. And uh, I don't know how you're going to get there fast. So we have to figure out ways of warping time and space. And if we do that, well, why do we bother having radio waves anyway? Good point. Good point. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to wrap it up, Bob. <laughs> Thank you very much. All the best, Steve. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech. Produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.